thelockbook.com. And Don't Give This Tape to Earl are brought to you by the BritBox channel on Amazon Prime. If you already have Amazon Prime, you can sign up for a free one-week trial of the BritBox channel featuring classic Doctor Who from 1963 through 1989, including the complete audio recordings of lost episodes and bonus features previously exclusive to DVD, along with brand new episodes of Red Dwarf and more. Thanks to BritBox, Amazon, and you for supporting thelogbook.com, and don't give this tape to Earl. Okay, so the other night I got this microwave dinner that was uh, really, really delicious. It was like this white cheddar pasta, almost like almost like lasagna with white cheddar instead of the usual cheese that you use in uh, lasagna. And this you know, surprisingly cheap container would net you a huge tub of this white cheddar lasagna with little pieces of bacon and chicken in it. Really, really good. My favorite thing about it, though, aside from how it tasted, was that the instructions were very precise. There was a lot of incredible specificity about what to do with the plastic film stretched across the top of the tub when you pulled it out of the freezer. You know, pull back one corner of the film, put it in the microwave, nuke it for this many minutes, pull it back out of the microwave, pull back another corner of the film and stir. Now, put all the film back where it was, microwave it some more. The the real cake topper on this set of instructions was remove film before eating. Don't tell me how to live my life, okay? Now, after all that effort that I put into the film, it can nourish me with its filminess. Get in my belly, film. Nothing will be wasted. Remove film before eating. We are a lost people. Mr. Announcer! The yum. Oh, my God. Thank you very much. Hold me alive. Oh, my God. The city giver is dead. Oh, my God. Okay, we're back just in time for Thanksgiving with Don't Give This Tape to Earl. As I noted last month, we've kind of jumbled the uh, format of the show around, so we are going to be talking about science, we're going to be talking about fiction, we're going to be talking about goodies and cool stuff, and we also have a main topic this month, so this is going to be a wildly varied show. First up in the science department, confirmed, we have confirmed it, the first object from interstellar space to be observed coming through our solar system. Now, there's probably been objects doing that for a long time, it's just we've never noticed it. And this was a sort of a strangely elongated asteroid. And it was detected as part of the uh, the near Earth asteroid observation, you know, the Space Watch program. And the trajectory it was on was determined to be hyperbolic, not parabolic. If it was parabolic, it would swing around the sun and then go back out to the far point of its orbit. You know, the Apelion. Um, this 
body did not do that. It was just passing through and we will never see it again. It has been given a name already. I actually looked up the pronouncer on this. It is a it is a Hawaiian name, meaning the first scout. Aumuamua. So, if you hear anyone talking about Aumuamua, that's what they're talking about. There, there were a lot of people saying, let's name it Rama. But, uh, save the Rama for your mama. If you can't remember Aumuamua, uh, before I looked up the pronouncer, I was going to call it Mbapa Mau Mau. Or, maybe not. Pictures are in from Juno's latest close pass of Jupiter. They are fantastic as usual. The, uh, and there's been a little bit more focus recently on the fact that the image processing is being done by citizen scientists. Plain old folks like you and me, maybe not necessarily people with a planetary science degree, are processing these images. And that's, that's a really unique situation because Juno is the first mission I can think of. I'm pretty sure it is the first mission where there is no budget in place to keep people on NASA's payroll to process these images for public consumption. The public is processing images for public consumption. It's a very, uh, it's a very unique setup, possibly the wave of the future. We lost Apollo 12 Command Module Pilot Dick Gordon at the age of 88 in the past month. One of the uh, last remaining Apollo astronauts. As the Command Module Pilot, uh, Dick Gordon stayed in orbit of the moon. He did not walk on it. Now, however, uh, depending on which sources you look this information up from, he was scheduled to go back and walk on the moon as the commander of Apollo 20, which of course Apollo 20 was cancelled so that its Saturn V rocket and its upper stage could be used for the Skylab space station. So Dick Gordon, Apollo 12 astronaut, never got to walk on the moon. Now some interesting geological news. There is a New paper proposing that there is a mantle plume under Aust un Australia? No, Antarctica. It's under Antarctica. Which raises the possibility that rather than being a... There are volcanoes, active volcanoes, on the continent of Antarctica. In fact, it there is a lava lake in the crater of Mount Erebus which is the longest lasting active lava lake in recorded history. And it's, it's still there now. I believe it's the University of Arizona sent a team to observe Erebus up close every, every year. And they're, they're there for only a few months. And then they come home and, you know, start working on their findings, start going through their data. So this really raises the interesting possibility if there is a mantle plume under Antarctica. And what they, what brought this to light was the fact that 
the ice sheet is melting in a pattern that is not consistent with you know, predicted patterns of climate change or just the seasons. Something else is affecting the, the Antarctic ice sheet and in some places is melting it faster than it should be melting. And even climate change can't account for that, which brought about this study proposing a mantle plume under Antarctica. Which, this is really interesting because if you're into volcanism at all, which you know I am, we now have to wonder if Antarctica's volcanoes, its active volcanoes, and even its dormant volcanoes, are indicative of the continent passing over a hot spot, a, a thinning of the mantle that allows material to come up, very similar to the spread of the Hawaiian Islands. The Hawaiian Islands were not always there. They are all volcanoes, some of them dormant, some of them still active, but they are the result of that crustal plate moving over a weak point in the mantle that allows magma and other material to circulate up on the lower layers of the Earth. So Antarctica's volcanoes could also be that way, which would explain away some of the discrepancies that have been noted with the trying to compare Antarctica's active volcanoes to the volcanoes you get along a subduction zone, sort of like the Cascade Mountains of the Pacific Northwest. Fascinating stuff. If you're into volcanism, if you're not into volcanism, well, take heart. If you're feeling old today, there's no need. The oceans on Enceladus, the icy moon of Saturn, that spews water ice into space by way of geysers. The subsurface oceans of Enceladus, which may simply be water, those oceans may be billions of years old. And that means oceans may be old enough for multicellular life of some kind to have evolved beneath the icy crust of Enceladus. So next time you're feeling old, remind yourself there may be some space fishies swimming around out there that are older than you. Or maybe not. I just thought I'd mention it. You need something older than that to make you feel young? Okay, try this one. Gravitational lensing allowed astronomers to detect and image spiral galaxy A1689b11. This galaxy is 11 billion light years away. So the translation of that is even at the speed of light, the light from this galaxy took 11 billion years to reach telescopes on Earth. To put it in perspective, this galaxy that we are seeing, we are seeing it as it was a mere 2.6 billion years after the Big Bang. A little bit closer to home, there was a successful drop glide flight of Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser vehicle. Now, that's a vehicle with a very long design history. Everyone's had a go at it. NASA tried it for a while as the HL-20. And I believe the Soviets also tried to get it to work. It went as far as testing scale models of it for re-entry and uh, glide control. But uh, Sierra Nevada Corporation has gotten a lot closer to getting 
this vehicle to work. And it looks kind of like a, a, a small, sporty, mini space shuttle. You know, it's it's got some more curves and some more angles that uh, make it look more aerodynamic or just sexier, depending on how you're looking at it. So congratulations to them for a successful flight. And it's one step closer to getting it flight qualified to go to the International Space Station. Elsewhere on the surface of the Earth, Arecibo lives. Hurricane Maria obviously really trashed Puerto Rico. One of the things that it trashed there was the Arecibo, Arecibo Radio Telescope Observatory. Now that has been maintained by the National Science Foundation and funded by the National Science Foundation for many years, and there have recently been funding problems. However, it has been announced that even though the National Science Foundation is going to minimize their funding contributions to the Arecibo Observatory, they are going to be bringing in outside funding from sources yet unidentified, allowing the Arecibo Radio Telescope to continue its decades of scientific discovery ever since it went online in the 1960s. And you have Arecibo to thank for, among other things, finally nailing down the rotational period or the length of the day on the planet Mercury, something that was not known until we could literally point this giant radar dish in the ground at the planet Mercury. So we have a lot of uh, a lot of scientific knowledge to thank Arecibo for and they're going to fix it up it did take some heavy damage from hurricane maria it's going to be fixed up and it will be back online at some unknown point in the future <laughs> Of course, you folks aren't listening to this to hear real, accurate, real-life science. You're here to listen to me defend the black hole, which is, of course, Disney's 1979 sci-fi movie, which is generally regarded to be a box office flop. And also over the years... Uh, it has been derided for everything from its effects, which uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Everything from its effects to its science, which, okay, I'll give you that. The science, if you can even call it that, of the black hole is just a little bit on the shaky side. But to understand how the movie became the finished product that it was, you have to understand where it started. Now, the black hole was actually initiated in 1974 under the title Space Probe 1, and it was envisioned as something of a family disaster movie, which probably means you would have had your stereotypical adult characters, and you would have had, you know, a Will Robinson-style kid in there to help out. In fact, there are some production sketches 
that indicated that one of the characters would have been a children. Space Probe 1 got bogged down in developing hell, mainly because the mid-70s tended to steer sci-fi toward the ground. If you think about it, there was a period in the 70s, and I think this, uh, I think this was a result of renewed Cold War tensions, uh, the rise of Earth Day and the environmental movement, and so on. Uh, the mid-70s tended to ground its sci-fi. After Silent Running, which was kind of a stepchild of 2001, you know, because you had, uh, you had Trumbull and Dykstra working on the effects. After that movie, uh, didn't really take off and set the world on fire. Uh, things came back down to Earth. You had the Planet of the Apes series, which did not go to space. They all took place on Earth. You had stuff like Damnation Alley, which took place on a ruined Earth. And you had Logan's Run. Again, never goes to space. Post-apocalyptic Earth. It was post-apocalyptic everything. And Space Probe 1 did not fit that mold, and therefore did not fit that budget. So... Onto the back burner, it went, and thus it languished. However, of course, as we all know, every studio in Hollywood that had had a back-burnered space-based sci-fi project that was just languishing and developing hell, suddenly, those things got put on the front burner after a little movie hit in 1977. I am, of course, talking about wizards. No, I'm talking about Star Wars, silly. So, once Star Wars had proven to be a hit, and then once Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, which, again, was a grounded sci-fi movie, but with spectacular effects that cost quite a bit and proved that Star Wars was not a flash in the pan, all the studios suddenly thawed out these long, frozen projects. The result was after a series of rewrites, including bringing in completely different writers, The Black Hole was finally released just before Christmas 1979. Now, I can't claim to have a completely objective love for The Black Hole. My love for The Black Hole is highly subjective. Here's what I love about this movie, and I think what a lot of People of a certain age who were also kids when the Black Hole premiered will also tell you what they love. Uh, first on my list in my notes here, floaty robot buddies. You simply cannot go wrong with a hovering robot voiced by Roddy McDowell. And furthermore, you can continue to not go wrong by having an old, beaten-up, older version of that same robot voiced by Slim Pickens. I am I am such a fan of the design of those robots. I, mean, I used to draw them on everything. They, you know, especially when I wasn't supposed to be drawing. I was supposed to be doing schoolwork. No, I was drawing Vincent and old Bob everywhere I could. Other things to love about this movie. There's the unlikely cathedral-esque architecture of the Cygnus. There has never been another ship like it before or since. I think that's a, I think it's a fair argument to make. 
There has been nothing that has looked like the Cygnus in any other sci-fi project that I can think of. And finally, I, you really cannot discount the impact that the soundtrack of the movie had. Because you had John Barry, who at the time was the default maestro for the James Bond movies, delivering this very doom-laden, very dark soundtrack that was just perfect. It was perfectly pitched to the movie. Really, the only thing that seemed to stand out as being out of place at all was the over-reliance on a sort of heroic march that kicks in about halfway through the movie. And they Once they have introduced that to the score, they lean on it pretty hard. But at least it's a good one. It's a fantastic soundtrack. And the funny thing is, it was unavailable for the longest time because the master tapes were AWOL. And once the master tapes were found, they were discovered to have been recorded on... They were one of the very first, if not the very first, digitally recorded soundtrack, but it relied on a Sony Open Reel recording unit with three heads that was no longer being made, no longer being maintained. They were lucky to find one in a studio in Nashville in the early 2000s, said studio then got flooded. So not only do we have tapes that have a limited time to be transferred to a digital format, but you have equipment that's just taken fresh water damage. Finally, uh, Intrada released it on CD, the complete score, not the edited score that was available on LP for the longest time. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. You know what else I cannot recommend is traumatizing your children almost for life. Now, seeing as the movie's been out for 38 years, I don't think I need to declare a spoiler alert for this part of it. Once our characters, who are led by Anthony Perkins of Psycho fame, once they figure out what is really going on aboard the Cygnus. That, you know, there is some serious applied mad science going on. They head for the exits. They're not going to stick around for this. Because they basically discovered that the entire crew of the Cygnus, which appears to be missing at the beginning of the movie, has been zombified and has basically been turned into slave labor, serving at the whim of Dr. Hans Reinhardt, the aforementioned scientist. Now, early in the movie, a large, red, aggressive floating robot named Maximilian is introduced. This thing is the perfect mechanical vision of evil. It does not speak, it does not have any lines, it just hovers menacingly, and it's really well done. I mean, for a static prop that had to be hoisted on piano wire, in order to float. And, you know, I'm sure at the time they were more concerned with whether or not the wires were showing than to imbue the thing with any kind of personality or performance. It has personality by the boatload, and it's not a pleasant personality. So when Anthony Perkins and Yvette Mimio are making to leave the bridge of the Cygnus, 
Maximilian deploys a couple of whirling drills. Not not like circular saws or anything like that, but you know, we are talking about some serious uh, dismantling meat drills. And rather surprisingly, because this was one of Disney's very first PG-rated movies, Maximilian basically drills Anthony Perkins' character to death. Now, it's not graphic. It's really more sound than picture. They, you know, they cut away from anything that might be objectionable. You know, as messy a death as it would have to be for that means of disposing of a character, it's really, (laughs) it's very bloodless. So, anyway, so that was kind of terrifying. You have to keep in mind, I was about seven years old at the time. And, yeah, before that scene, I had already figured out, yeah, we were pretty afraid of Maximilian. So, whenever we were in the theater, the first time I ever saw the black hole with my parents, and my mom figured out that Anthony Perkins was about to get drilled, she reached over and covered my eyes with her hands. Which means I just heard this. Come on, Kay, let's get you out of here. Maximilian! He was a good man. Funny thing, the imagination. Because if you have something that sounds like that, you fill in the blanks on what it looks like. It's almost like listening to a a radio play or an audio drama. So, once she was certain that there was going to be no bloodshed, my mother withdrew her hand from my face. But at this point, I was now terrified that, you know, something really awful had been shown. And, of course, my seven-year-old mind started filling in the blanks. That Christmas, I happened to get the LP, the uh, Disneyland Records LP, of the story of the Black Hole, which is sort of the narrated, edited highlights of the movie on both sides of a 33 and a third LP. I was scared to listen to the part of the record where Anthony Perkins' character dies. I, you know, I couldn't bear to hear it again. As Dr. Durant escorted Kate toward the elevator, Maximilian advanced toward them. At the end of his outstretched arms, whirled knife-sharp blades. Dr. Durant was cut down in an instant. Maximilian, you shouldn't have done that. He was a good man. Now, Whitman Gold Key adapted the black hole into a multi-part comic series, which I remember getting as part of the... uh, you know, I was in grade school, so this, I think, probably would have been like the Scholastic book sales circulars. And in the Gold Key Comics version of The Black Hole, Max Maximilian just uh, lasers Anthony Perkins' character. And again, it's very bloodless, and it's nothing more offensive than 
your average scene from Star Wars. And finally, once we got to the mid-1980s, the black hole started showing up on HBO, the Disney Channel, and so on. And I finally girded my loins. What does that even mean? No, I, I didn't do anything with my loins. I didn't gird anything. I basically sucked it up and was determined to sit through the whole movie. A couple of times I pussed out. I just totally left the room and stuck my fingers in my ears, literally, to avoid that scene. And you have to keep in mind, we are now talking about a point at which I am 10 years old. And so I have been scared to death of this scene from this very innocuous movie for three years now. And finally, one day, I was doing something, and I completely forgot to leave the room. And I just happened to look up and realized that what I had been imagining in my head for three years was a lot bloodier and a lot more gross than what they actually put on film. I realized my mother was just trying to help, and I'm sure she was shocked that she had to even think about doing this in a Disney movie. But, uh, there you go. My, my history with the black hole, as much as I love the movie, is quite checkered. <laughs> it took me a while before I really got to enjoy the full impact of it. Now, earlier I mentioned the, the Gold Key comics and the storybook record. And there were also shorter storybook tapes that went with the black hole. And I believe there's one on display at the Arcadia Retrocade in Fayetteville on their wall of retro. I'm sure they'll let me know if I'm wrong about that, but I can swear I've seen it. There were lots of goodies associated with the black hole. First off, there was a great line of action figures from Mego. Now, Mego produced action figures with more points of articulation than the Kenner Star Wars action figures, but they were about the same size. Now, this was a great, great thing, because I now had a Vincent who could go on adventures with R2-D2 and C-3PO. And I am not going to lie to you, I did that combination a lot. Vincent became a de facto addition to the Star Wars universe as far as I was concerned. And I believe Maximilian did too. There was an action figure of Maximilian and I think he was like Darth Vader's right hand robot for a while. At least, uh, at least in my action figure imaginings. Whitman Gold Key extended their comic series Beyond the Movie, literally re retitling it Beyond the Black Hole. But the way they continued the story was extremely weird, because we go through the black hole and we emerge from a white hole, and there's another Cygnus and another Dr. Reinhardt and another Maximilian, except this Maximilian can talk, and there's another old Bob, and Vincent plugs into old Bob and brings him up to speed on everything that the original old Bob knew, because the original old Bob, spoiler alert, was destroyed at the end of the movie, and, of course, in the comic book. This, oh, oh, yes, and before I forget, there were dinosaurs. There were dinosaurs. Talking Maximilian, 
resurrected Reinhardt dinosaurs. That, in a nutshell, is beyond the black hole. It did not last long enough to tell whatever story was being set up. It was a very short-lived comic. Now, as one of the very first PG-rated movies in the history of the Walt Disney Company, The Black Hole drew a lot of criticism, some of it unwarranted, a lot of it before the movie even came out. Which, you know, there's plenty to criticize with this movie, believe me. Before you get to the fact that, you know, oh no, Disney's putting out something that is not suitable for five-year-olds. The uproar over the black hole, and there was another movie that I believe was out the same year but had been filmed earlier that was also PG-rated, and there was an uproar about that. This led directly to Disney establishing, I guess you'd call it an imprint, almost a label, Touchstone Pictures. So they could put their PG-rated, or worse, fare out on Touchstone Pictures without it instantly being linked to the Disney name in the minds of the general public. Now, it was no secret to anyone working in showbiz, but that is how Touchstone Pictures got started. Neil deGrasse Tyson has declared The Black Hole the most scientifically inaccurate sci-fi movie he's ever seen. Now, I am not going to presume to act like I could stand toe-to-toe with Neil deGrasse Tyson and debate him on this. But, Dr. Tyson, please, Zardoz is still out there. I rest my case. Now, now we were just talking about the, the Disney pantheon and how, after the black hole caused some controversy, a, a separate identity was established to separate the PG and later PG-13 rated movies from the general Disney brand. But what if we undo that and bring everything under the Disney umbrella? Let me tell you about the WALL-E theory. Yes, I'm talking about the Pixar movie, WALL-E. Now, I'm going to assume that you have seen WALL-E. If you haven't, you need to. It's the best Pixar movie ever. Better than any of the Toy Story movies. Seriously, I mean that. And it is one of the most beautifully constructed science fiction films so far this century. For any age group. It's just a, it's a lovely, lovely movie. And I have a huge amount of affection for Wally. However, thinking of the character of Wally, don't his eyes look a little bit like uh, old Bob's eyes? Which kind of makes you think that if you had, uh, you know, and they established in Wally that a lot of Wally's identical twins, you know, his fellow cleanup robots, were being trashed by the sheer amount of rubbish all over the earth to the point that they were broken down and Wally was having to cannibalize parts from you know basically his kin so if you were a a person who was 
trying to lead this cleanup effort, and you saw your ground-hugging robots basically being torn up by the very task that they were dispatched to do, wouldn't you do something like figure out how you could get the robots to fly or, say, hover? Which leads us to Eve. But in a way, you know, with the modular design and the fact that it can shut itself down completely, close all of its panels and protect itself, Eve is kind of like a really, really, really upgraded version of Vincent. Now, in terms of technology, this would be like comparing a TRS-80 to an iMac. And I'm, I don't think I am misspeaking when I say the design of Eve was very heavily iMac-influenced. But, anyway, there's, there are some suspicious, notable similarities among the robots, but there are also some similarities and coincidences with the plotline. And here's where I stop telling you about the theory, because the rest of it actually makes up a chapter of my book, Fatherhood, Fandom, and Fading Out, which you can get for Kindle or you can get in print. It would make a great Christmas gift to yourself or to someone who you want to hit over the head with strange theories about the black hole and Wally actually taking place in the same fictional universe. So there's there's more about <laughs> more about that in the book and I hopefully have uh, wet your appetite a little bit so you can seek out the rest of it. All these years later I still love the black hole. Now, it's not flawless. It has not much in the way of substance. It's basically 20,000 leagues under the sea in space. And it has more atmosphere than it actually has coherent plot. But the robots and the spaceships are all brilliant designs. It's a fantastic movie to look at. That is still my favorite cinematic depiction of a black hole. I mean... Of course, now we can CGI everything to hell and back. But I love that cloud tank, fluorescent ink take on what a black hole might look like. I unabashedly love this movie. It is not a guilty pleasure at all. It's a part of my childhood. It is an imperfect part of my childhood. But I feel the need to stick up for the black hole because I feel it has been unjustly maligned. It's sort of like the... If you've read any of my books about Doctor Who and Star Trek, you know I'm not a fan of what I call received wisdom, which is that a fandom basically creates its own mythology as to which episodes or movies are good and which are bad. An example of received wisdom would be that the Star Trek... In the original Star Trek movie cycle, the odd-numbered ones are all terrible, and the even-numbered ones are all terrific. And that simply is not the case. That doesn't hold up to any kind of scrutiny. That's an example of received wisdom. The black hole is a victim of decades of received wisdom. And I think if you can actually go at it with an open mind... Forget what you think you know or think you've heard about this movie and just watch it and be entertained by it. You'll understand why it made such an impression 
on myself and so many other uh, kids and kids at heart since 1979. And, of course, scared the pants off of me for three years straight. Which is a phrase I don't think has ever before been uttered in the English language. Thanks, Mom. I bet you're wanting to hear some things about forms of entertainment a little bit more recent than a movie from 1979. So, let's talk fiction. I recently finished Stranger Things 2. I'm one of these strange people who does not watch the whole thing on the same day. Now, I will tell you this, I was very happy with it. This season did everything that a good sequel should. It expanded on the original story. It illuminated some of the stuff that had been left unexplored in the first season and really kind of deepened the characters quite a bit. Now, the thing is, I'm not sure where they can go with it from here, but uh, apparently they're going to get two more seasons to play with. So... A very good job by the Duffer Brothers and their various collaborators. The Star Trek Continues series finale dropped on YouTube on November the 13th, which I watched with some trepidation because the this was the second part of a two-parter, and the first parter had eliminated kind of a minor character, but he was a minor recurring character that we had you know, grown to regard as part of the family. And the moment that they extinguished that character, I had an uneasy feeling that I knew what was going to happen to the rest of the characters that were original to Star Trek Continues. Now, Star Trek Continues is a, or was, a fan series that basically aimed to do what a fourth season of the original Star Trek would have done, you know, at least as they saw it. And it was kind of a pleasing mix of sequelizing episodes of the original series and doing more original storytelling. The two-part finale for Star Trek Continues did a little bit of both. It harkened back to multiple episodes of the original series, including the second pilot, Where No Man Has Gone Before. And it did so very skillfully. I mean, it was just very... It, it used the resources of these other stories and these dangling threads very well. Which is no surprise, because it was co-written by Robert J. Sawyer, who is a Hugo and Nebula award-winning writer. And, in fact, I happened to uh, lend a hand on fact-checking and editing essay anthology that was co-edited by Robert J. Sawyer's, or really co-curated 
by Robert J. Sawyer and David Gerald in 2000, it's 2007. It was called Boarding the Enterprise, and it's still available. It's still out there. may still have my name in the back. There was a, uh, a recent reprint of it for the 50th anniversary of the original Star Trek's premiere. And I, I haven't gotten the reprint, so I don't know if my name, if my credit is still in the, at the very last page of the book or not. You'll have to tell me. So, obviously, we are dealing with someone who knew how to work within the confines of Star Trek, but also do something new and thrilling with it. But, just as I feared, all of these secondary recurring characters that the fan series had introduced over the few years that it was in production, of course, we never hear of any of these people once we get to the movies, and that is, of course, because they weren't thought of at the time. So I had an, unfe- an uneasy feeling when the first death hit that the rest of these characters were going to suffer a similar fate because you have to eliminate them from the playing field, basically. You know, you never hear anyone talking about, uh, you know, the security chief or the ship's counselor once you get to the movies. No one ever breathes a word of them, of course, because they hadn't been thought of. They are tacked on entirely within this fan series. And, of course, all of these characters have to be eliminated. But it was done so skillfully and so poetically, bringing you right up, I mean, right up before Star Trek The Motion Picture, that I can almost overlook how much it hurt to lose these characters that you'd come to care about. One day before that dropped on YouTube, we had the fall finale of Star Trek Discovery. Also a wow. I, At this point, I am way past... Star Trek Discovery would really have to screw things up royal for me to dislike it at this point. I am, I am firmly on board with the show. I have mental justifications for why stuff looks different on Discovery than it did in the original Star Trek, which supposedly happens ten years later. And I just, I really don't have a problem with, oh, the uniforms don't look like they did in 1960s. And the sets don't look like they did. Well, get past it, because they're telling a hell of a story. And if you spend all of your time carping about that, you're really missing it. Star Trek Discovery will be back on the 7th of January, 2018, for its remaining six episodes. It has already been renewed for a second season, but we have been warned that it may be 2019 before that second season appears. Ouch. Big news from the Star Wars universe. Porgs. They're what's for dinner. No, that's not the big news from the Star Wars universe. The big news from the Star Wars universe is that Ryan Johnson has basically been handed an entire new Star Wars trilogy. He gets to plot it out, write it, direct it. And I think this is a... I think this is a pretty good indication that maybe The Last Jedi is one hell of a movie. (laughs) Because I don't think Disney would hand him that kind of blank slate and that kind of blank check if The Last Jedi was not one hell of a movie. 
So it, uh, you know, never mind what whatever he comes up with for a trilogy. And now I'm my appetite is really whetted for the Last Jedi because you know porgs. <clears throat> Red Dwarf 12 has concluded in the UK. If you were a subscriber to BritBox or the BritBox channel on Amazon, you could watch it day and date with the UK, which is uh, kind of neat, but it was also very poorly advertised. Red Dwarf 12 just... It wasn't quite as strong as Red Dwarf 11, but... I don't know. That's like... Uh, that's like saying that your Ferrari is not quite up to par with your Maserati. It was still pretty good, and I wouldn't mind seeing more out of them. We'll see how the uh, the numbers did for the UK comedy channel, Dave. That will probably have a lot to do with whether or not we see any more Red Dwarf. And, it, you know, in any case, for a show that started with an almost zero budget in 1988 as a sitcom and is now a special effects extravaganza that guest stars line up to be on. Red Dwarf has more lives than a cat at this point. Possibly more lives than the cat. Marvel's Inhumans uh, wrapped up its eight-episode run on ABC. I know a lot of people weren't that crazy about it. I didn't think it was that bad. I thought it was kind of fun. However... I will add this disclaimer to that. I am not intimately acquainted with the Inhumans in comic form. And so I don't know what part of the original story they were violating, but really, and this is increasingly my take on adaptations of comics characters, which anymore you really have to figure that it's the universe and the characters that are being adapted and not a specific story. Um, it was fine. It was a lot of fun. Who doesn't love Lockjaw? Bigger than life. Composer Murray Gold is leaving Doctor Who after this year's Christmas episode, Twice Upon a Time. The incoming producer, Chris Chibnall, is going to bring in his own choice of composer. Quite a few fans are up in arms about this. I have been kind of a lone voice in the wilderness saying that Doctor Who could use a new musical voice for quite some time, especially in 2013 with the, uh, the docudrama and adventure in space and time and that wildly different musical take on the origins and iconography of Doctor Who made me realize that, you know, we'd really just had one voice for the longest time, you know, for, at that point, it was eight years. At this point, uh, Murray Gold is going out at the end of 12 years, which makes him second only to the late, great Dudley Simpson, who scored episodes of Doctor Who on and off, but really a vast majority of them from 1964 through 1979. Uh, no word yet on... Who will be replacing Murray Gold. As for the folks who are disappointed that he's leaving, I will just say this. It's really more of a surprise that Murray Gold didn't leave at the end of 2009. Because he was brought in by Russell T. Davies. 
He had worked with Russell T. Davies. They'd collaborated before on such things as Casanova and The Second Coming. And I would have expected Murray to either leave or be replaced whenever Stephen Moffat took over. But he wasn't. And so it seems like it's more of a shocking surprise now when really it's perfectly normal. Actually, I wouldn't have minded Murray Gold staying if he was alternating with someone. Sort of like in the old days of Star Trek The Next Generation, where you had Dennis McCarthy one week, Ron Jones the next week, and they'd alternate and have completely different but compatible sounds. And that's an approach that they actually deliberately have brought back on the Orville. So, I don't know. I... I love everything that Murray Gold has done to date, but, you know, after 12 years, a lot of it does start to sound the same. So, take that or leave it, that's really just my opinion. Happy fifth birthday to the Arcadia Retrocade in Fayetteville, which, if you have not heard me sing the praises of this place in any of my podcasts before... Let me just lay it out for you. Over 100 vintage working arcade games on the floor. $5 gets you in the door. Everything is set on free play. And they have tons of real classics in there. The first thing you see when you walk in the door is a Pong machine from 1972. So Arcadia Retrocade is serious about its mission of not just providing fun, but also just kind of kind of a walk through history of that medium of entertainment and you're doing yourself a real disservice if you don't drop by throw down a fiver and just walk around with your jaw on the floor actually don't walk around with your jaw on the floor walk around with your feet on the floor and your jaw firmly attached to your face just a suggestion there now, CBS All Access, having uh, more than doubled its subscriber base with Star Trek Discovery, has announced that it will be reviving the Twilight Zone for its uh, pay streaming service. Now, this is all very much in the ink-on-paper stage. I doubt very much the serious development work has begun. But that's, um, that's interesting. That would be the third revival of the Twilight Zone on television since the original series ended in the uh, early 1960s. There was a 1980s revival that started on CBS and then went into syndication. There was a second revival attempt in the early 2000s on UPN, uh, which gave us the sight of Forrest Whitaker standing in for Rod Serling, which I thought was a brilliantly inspired touch, because... I really like Forrest Whitaker, but there you go. No idea who the host on the new show would be. Probably be a whole different ballgame. Now, possibly even more exciting than Ryan Johnson getting his own Star Wars trilogy to do with as he pleases, Disney is going to be launching its own paid streaming service, not unlike CBS All Access. And one of the first things that will be on it, and quite possibly the cornerstone of it when it premieres, 
will be a live-action Star Wars series, which is now going into pre-production. Now, there is no ironclad word yet on whether or not this is related to the Star Wars Underworld project that was overseen by George Lucas and Rick McCallum at around the same time that the early seasons of the Clone Wars CGI cartoon was on the air. Uh, Underworld was going to deal with the seedier side of the Star Wars universe, bounty hunters, machinations within the Empire, that sort of thing. And the amazing thing about Star Wars Underworld is that at the time that the project was put on ice, supposedly they had 50 one-hour scripts already written by a an all-star panel of writers that included Ronald D. Moore of Star Trek The Next Generation, DS9, Battlestar Galactica, and Outlander fame, Matthew Graham, who created the BBC's Life on Mars and Ashes to Ashes, also wrote some key episodes of the new Doctor Who, and Irish writer Terry Capola, who wrote for Law & Order UK and Camelot, and Chris Chibnall, who is now the incoming Doctor Who showrunner, and was also effectively in that position on Torchwood and created the hit ITV series Broadchurch. Russell T. Davies was invited to take part in these all-star, all-in-one-room, everyone throw out great ideas and go write a script brainstorming sessions, but he declined. The big thing that knocked Star Wars Underworld off the rails was that they could not figure out how they were going to be able to afford to do it. They they did not feel like they had a delivery system that was worthy of it. And then, of course, the sale to Disney happened literally weeks after the last writing sessions. So... Of course, now, I don't know that any of this is germane in any way to the live-action project that Disney has, Disney and Lucasfilm, have in pre-production. It could be something completely different. You know, it could be the young, the young Yoda Chronicles, sort of like we had the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Who knows? Big Finish Productions, makers of fine audio dramas in the UK, is reviving... The short-lived but absolutely wonderful 1980s sci-fi drama Star Cops in audio form with virtually all of the surviving cast members. Star Cops is a show that I don't think made it over here. I had to get a Region 2 DVD and stick it in my special DVD player to watch it once it arrived in the States. But I cannot recommend it highly enough that you seek it out. It's entirely probable that the, I believe there were seven, seven or nine episodes. They're probably on YouTube somewhere. I'm not going to direct you to where because I guarantee you that they are not up there with the blessings of the BBC or of the series creator Chris Boucher. But Star Cops coming back is a really, really good thing. It was a very groundbreaking, groundbreaking, yes, groundbreaking series that did not get its due. See, I'm already thinking about Thanksgiving dinner already. Bake the ground until it's a crispy golden brown. Remove film before eating. Big Finish is also doing a special Blake 7 
two-part story for the 40th anniversary. Next year is the 40th anniversary of Blake 7. Holy crap, do I feel old. This story is called The Way Ahead, and each part of the story takes place at a different point in the series. And so that's something to look forward to, because they have virtually all of the surviving cast members of Blake 7 coming together to bring that story to life, even though uh, one of them, Glennis Barber, who was one of the regulars in the fourth season, fourth and final season of Blake 7, is not playing her character of Sulin from the fourth season. She is playing a different character. So apparently there was some sort of copyright issue with being able to use the character of Sulin from the fourth series of Blake 7. Speaking of Blake 7... I have the most wonderful shiny pin, the Blake 7 logo. I've had it since I was a teenager. And, uh, oh, sorry. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I was mentioning, I have had this uh, sort of cloisonné style pin of the Blake 7 logos that I ordered when I was a teenager from a mail-order sci-fi goodies place called StarTech that was based out of Dunlap, Tennessee. None of which really, uh, really should mean anything to you. However, I have added that 30-plus-year-old Blake 7 pin to a little project of mine, which I call the Cloak of Geekitude. Basically, the Cloak of Geekitude is not even a cloak. It's more like a double-breasted peacoat. Almost looks like something out of Firefly. I mean, it kind of looks like a, a brown coat, but it's it's got kind of a more antique feel than that. And it's got these two huge lapels that I have festooned with my pin collection, which includes both pop culture stuff and uh, a huge number of NASA mission pins and related items. There's a lot of really cool stuff on there. I, uh, you know, I was able to load it down with pins without acquiring a huge amount of new stuff, but there are, among other things, there are pins representing uh, Gachaman or as it's known in the Western world, Battle of the Planets. Uh, there is a pin of the cheat from Homestar Runner that someone on Etsy made for me. There is a, uh, there is a Porg pin, because Porgs. And there is a, uh, let's see, there's a pin for Mystery Science Theater 3000. There is a pin for Space Battleship Yamato, or as the English-speaking world knows, it's Star Blazers. Star Trek The Motion Picture, there's a pin of Vincent from The Black Hole. Hey, man, this whole podcast just connects to itself like a pretzel. There is a pin for the Electric Light Orchestra. There is a pin for Split Ends, which a friend of mine in Australia 
sent to me that had been languishing in the back of a jewelry box since they got it at a concert in 1980 and so on and so forth basically the you know if you're looking at me head-on while I'm wearing this the lapel to your left or to my right is science the other lapel is fiction the, the science side basically shows you uh, mission insignia from various planetary missions starting from Mercury and going outward from there. Um, pins from Soviet Venus landers. Uh, pins from the earliest robot landers to touch down on the moon, both Soviet and American. Uh, gobs and gobs of Mars missions, including some attempted ones that uh, didn't quite make it. Missions to Jupiter, like Pioneer 10 and Galileo. Missions to Saturn, like Pioneer 11 and Cassini. And then, of course, the Voyager missions to the even further-flung planets than that. New Horizons to Pluto, and so on. And the uh, there are, there's also a section devoted to uh, missions to asteroids. But in the middle of these NASA mission pins for missions to asteroids and comets is an Atari pin for the game Asteroids, just in case you didn't get the sequencing. <laughs> but the point is, it's it, basically you look at this and you can tell everything I am into at a glance. And, you know, if someone wants to stop me and talk about any of them, I can probably talk their ear off about any one of the things represented on this piece of clothing. It's very warm, too, which is great because we're going into winter. It's got this great lining, and boy, is it warm. So, that is the Cloak of Geekitude. You've probably heard me mention it. You've probably seen me post some uh, some random Cloak of Geekitude beauty shots on Twitter and on Facebook. Well, that's what this is all about. So, uh, Check out at LogbookGuy on Twitter or check out the Facebook page for thelogbook.com and you'll see what I'm talking about. There's also a blog entry from when I was in the early stages of putting it together and it didn't quite have as many pins as it does now. And I'll include a link to that on the show page at thelogbook.com slash this tape. The Women of NASA Lego set is out I have not been able to get mine yet, and I am praying that they don't run out of them before I can get my hands on one. I really want one. Actually, I almost kind of want two, because I'm sure the boys are going to want one of their own. Now, speaking of ELO, they have finally announced 2018 dates for a U.S. tour. Although, here's the thing. It's kind of an underwhelming list of stops that completely avoids my part of the country altogether. The closest shows to me are Dallas and Houston. The show in Cincinnati, I could go up to Cincinnati and see ELO and then you know, go to the zoo and jump in and take a swim with Fiona. Or maybe not. I am hoping that they add some dates to the U.S. itinerary. There is a tour of the UK, Ireland, and Germany that follows later in 2018, to which dates are already being added because those shows are selling out. 
So I hope that something similar happens in the U.S. You know, Tulsa, Little Rock, Joplin, that would be great. Oklahoma City would be less ideal because it's further out than Tulsa. But Oklahoma City is more doable than Dallas for me on my budget. So I have not pre-ordered, you know, I have not pre-purchased my tickets yet. Because I am holding out hope that dates will be added in venues that are a bit more favorable to me travel-wise. Now, at the same time as this announcement, uh, Yellow has also released a really nice live album called Wembley or Bust. I've listened to about half of it so far, and it's uh, it's very nice. It, it certainly beats the pants off the night the light went on on Long Beach, which was the first ELO live album recorded in 1974, and uh, the sound quality was not great in 1974 on that live recording. So, yeah, this is uh, this is Jeff Lynne approved. In other music news, Beat Records, which is a uh, European record label that often specializes in music from Italian cinema, has finally unleashed upon the world for the first time on any medium. It hasn't even been out on tape or LP. The soundtrack from The Puma Man, which was immortalized as one of my all-time favorite episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000 where they completely riff on the soundtrack as much as they do the movie because it has this very cheerful melody that just recurs throughout any time Puma Man is getting up to Puma Man's stuff this little synthesizer loop plays and it's just so cheerful and it plays at the most inappropriate times in the movie um Somewhat related to Star Trek Discovery, Cliff Eidelman, who composed the music for Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, in 1991, released on iTunes and Amazon an EP, a four-track EP, called Into the Unknown. Apparently, early in development of Star Trek Discovery, Cliff Eidelman was brought in to submit a demo, a music demo, for what he thought the show's theme, you know, the main theme and its incidental music would sound like. Now, nobody took him up on this, which, that would have been a really interesting case of bridging the gap between generations there. But, not one to waste the effort, Cliff Eidelman has released these four demo tracks as the EP Into the Unknown. It's available in the logbook.com store. There will be a link to it at the show page, thelogbook.com slash this tape. Finally, in 2018, um... Random Penguin Books, <laughs> which is the uh, the love child of the merger of Random House and Penguin Books in the UK, will be bringing back the Target Books imprint and releasing new novelizations of Doctor Who television episodes. Russell T. Davies will adapt Rose. Jenny Colgan will adapt The Christmas Invasion, which was the first appearance of David Tennant as the Tenth Doctor. Stephen Moffat will be adapting The Day of the Doctor. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to those. I grew up reading the Target novelizations. I hope they nail the artwork style. I hope they nail the writing style. This is going to be delightful. 
that's about it for this installment of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. The Christmas tree is already up, complete with arcade games. I think I mentioned in last month's show that I had gotten the uh, gotten the world's tiniest arcade games. And there's, there's a link to those for the logbook.com store that I'll put on the show page. So you can order your own. But I have found they make dandy little Christmas ornaments. Uh, the kids love them. I basically put them all at the same latitude in the tree. They're all at about the same level. One on each side, basically, if you, uh, you know, kind of make a square around the tree. And the kids will stand there and play them like they're just bellying up to a full-size machine in the arcade. So that's uh, that has proven to be a big hit. I'm fully expecting to come home and find the cats playing them at this rate. However, the approach of Christmas means that my podcast will be taking a little bit of a breather over the holidays. I'm not really anticipating having any Christmas special episodes out this year. I, I just don't think there's going to be time. We'll see. Maybe something will pop up. And the kids are going to be over a lot, which really cuts down on recording time. And I have been trying to find a remedy in, to the problem of recording out in the living room where I might potentially wake the kids up when they are over. I kind of wish I had Flax Podcart at my disposal, but instead I have Podcats. Podcats, they, you know, they're the cats who hang around you when you're trying to record your podcast. Don't give this tape to Earl and Select Game will return in February 2018, at which point I fully expect to have been replaced by Christopher Plummer. Thanks for listening to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. You can find the podcast at thelogbook.com slash this tape on FeedBurner and on iTunes every month that it's produced. If you like this and the logbook's other podcasts, feel free to support us at patreon.com slash the logbook. Your support has a direct impact on site hosting costs, podcast production, and other great content. Don't Give This Tape to Earl was written, produced, and hosted by Earl Green. That's me. I also did the music. And that means you probably shouldn't give a synthesizer to Earl either. Especially not if there's a tape nearby.